0: I think a lot of women said, screw that noise, because they had a taste of freedom. They had a taste of making their own money, a taste of spending their own money, making their own decisions. I think the beginning of the women's movement had its seeds right there in World War II. Deli Han. You're listening to Jammy's Bits of Jam, a monthly storytelling podcast celebrating writing from bricky, brave gals. Each month, we choose a
1: new theme and write a short 10-minute story based on that theme for you, Giggle Mugs. This month's theme is World War II. Our first story, based on her father's time in the Second World War, is from Carol Soliday from
2: Illinois, entitled, O Canada. A-chunga-chang, a-chunga-chang young Dave could hear the 845 freight train approaching. He had been unable to sleep because of the anticipation of his upcoming journeys, so he had kept the hobo fires burning and brewed coffee for fellow acquaintances that too hung around in the camp near the railroad. During and after the Depression years, this had become his way of life as a transient in search of jobs and a way to live. It could be a difficult life to be snubbed by many as being impoverished. Some people considered them the undesirable element, whether criminal or as lazy beggars. This was mostly the untruth, as many used the rails as a means of travel. There was a sense of freedom, hopping a freight train, getting off where you chose to go, and finding work enough to pay for food and essentials. They did not depend on free handouts. If one of the hobos had a can of beans, the whole campsite could partake. That was the code. One of Dave's weaknesses was that he would give someone the shirt off his back even if he needed it. He was self-sacrificial in that way. At age 19, he had bounced around between his mother and dad, wh- whom were divorced when he was two years old, and a grandmother and their families. He had made it through the 6th grade but had to quit and find work where he could to help support his family out. He liked to think of himself as a Rhodes Scholar. He was like a sponge and absorbed all that he could read, and he filed away observations and experiences for some rich storytelling later around the campfires. Like most young men at this age, Dave wanted, was wanting to serve his country as many generations before in prior wars. His dad and uncle had served in World War I and grandfather in the Civil War. It had changed his father as he had served as a medic in the wo- England in the war. His dad always said that you are not a man until you go to war. Dave had always felt he had to prove himself. Even his mother would be working at a hairpin factory making pins for bombs in the war. Dave had came up from Texas where he had enlisted in the U.S. Air Force only to be discharged honorably after six months because of medical reasons. He had felt such disappointment. He thought he could keep up with the best of soldiers. He stopped off at his mother's house for a short visit and told her of his disappointment. Since she was a Blackfoot Indian, she suggested that there was a distant family in Canada and that maybe he could fight on the Canadian side. After all, the Second World War was all about the Allies defeating the war machine in Europe and preventing further genocide of people because of the race and religion. It would be the most turbulent time which would bring on the emergence of the atomic bomb against Japan in the war in the Pacific. As the train approached closer, Dave readied himself to hop the freight car. All the belongings he owned was in his duffel bag, which he carried on his back, he always traveled light as he never stayed in one place too long to grow roots or attachments. Finally, the rail car was inside. Dave threw his duffel bag onto the car, ran and limp, making a hard landing upon the wooden slat floor. Here he could sit and watch the world go by. This made him feel as the world was his oyster, at least for now. After days, hours passed, and a few switches of freight cars, Dave had made it to Fort Erie on July 9, 1939. Along the way, he had done a few jobs for food, drink, and minimal coin. He now had a total of 40 cents in his pocket at the border crossing into Canada. He had a strong will and work ethic. He was ready to lay down his life at the Freedom of for the freedom of his country and to fight the injustice of the world, even if it meant going to another country to do it. Dave was accepted into Canadian Armed Forces as a private on the front lines. He was shipped to France. It was a rigorous journey and battle he would face. Years later, he would be haunted by the bloody battles and loss of his comrades. He had such respect for the Green Berets who had forged ahead of his unit. There would be lame times for the soldiers as well as the citizens of France. He could not get over the fact they had to eat horse meat, as he loved horses and had been around them all his life as a trainer. The war took its toll on France and its people. The French had welcomed the Canadian soldiers with open arms as they marched into the villages with the bagpipes blowing. The sound always would bring tears to his eyes as he choked up with pride for his brothers in the arms. Some had not made it so far, and some would not make it much farther. It was not all darkness. Dave found a light in the midst of the war. In troubled times, love can be found. Dave had a weekend pass and had met a French girl named Marie Marchand, a waitress in a small village café. Her father had died in the conflict and her brother was still off fighting the war. Here she was trying to make enough coin to support her and her mother. At first she had not wanted to date a GI as soldiers would leave the country when the war was over. But because Day was so determined and they understood each other so well, love was inevitable. They found joy within each other's company. For now that would be enough. Finally the day arrived, that day was to move out with the troops. He cursed his misfortune. He shed tears of sorrow as he buried his face in his pillow that night, tears for his love and the loss of comrades. Here he was hidden where he could not be seen, underneath the star strewn skies. In these days grown men are not supposed to cry. The next day he met Marie. She had a daze-knowing look in her eyes. She knew this would eventually come. Dave wanted to promise to make her his war bride, but here they were, both penniless. If love was equal to the ounces of gold, they would be beyond the wealth of this world. He cursed that he had not been born with a silver spoon. Today was a day of grief and mourning, of love found and love lost during a time of war. Today, he would ship out with her photograph she had given him in his shirt pocket next to his heart. As Dave stood on the ship, watching Europe fading into the distant sea, a single tear fell from his eye. Memories linger always in the hearts and minds of loved ones. The soldiers of the Second World War sacrificed from lost loves for their countries and fellow comrades with such tender hearts and with brave courage. Yes, this grown man, along with many others, had fought for the right to cry, to mourn their loss, and to hold on to freedoms we all rightly deserve.
1: And now, based on a true story, Five Prayers, written and read by Iris Floyd.
3: It wasn't until the 50th anniversary of World War II that my uncle Tillman Kinney, affectionately known as Hoss, talked about his first days in combat to a few of his siblings, including my mother. I always thought there would be time to sit down with Uncle Hoss and write his story, but he died without that meeting. This story is partly from what my mother told me, partly from independent research, and partly conjecture and poetic license. The following is based on a true story from World War II Five Prayers by Iris Floyd. The skies were gray that infamous day in June 1944, the air filled with the smell of seawater and gunpowder from above, and vomit wafting up from the wood floor of the wave bouncing, flat bottomed Higgins PCTV boat. Thirty-six gear-laden soldiers stood shoulder to shoulder along with one chaplain as the boat crew on the raised deck behind them dodged burning wreckage, sunken boats, and debris on the waves to Omaha Beach. Haas stood next to one edge of the boat. Taller than most in his platoon, he could clearly see the visible horror of war unfolding on the ever-advancing shore, both above the top of the boat in the bouncing waves and through the window on the boat's landing ramp. The heaviest of the fighting had been done in the previous two days, but he could see the fire from big guns farther up the beach and see the movement of tank dozers, jeeps, and trucks on the advancing beach in front of him. Smoke rose from fires and exploding munitions, further darkening a dreary sky. As the boat got closer to landing, he saw the movement and felling of soldiers, men scaling the cliffs in the distance and heard the ever-increasing sounds of war. He looked at the depth of the beach and the cliffs in the distance and feared he may never again see the Louisiana farm where he grew up. He remembered the morning he and his year-older brother, Amos, left home for the Army. They got in the truck with their father for the drive to town and looked back down the long concrete front walk of the farm home they might never see again. Their nine brothers and sisters were waving goodbye from the steps of the porch. Two teenage sisters were holding the youngest of children and wiping their cheeks between waves. His mother was standing at the edge of the porch, clinging to his new and last baby brother, unable to hide the fear and sorrow in her heart. He remembered the touch and smell of his mother's soft skin as he bent down and tightly hugged her goodbye. Home seemed a world away, and he was glad that his family did not know where he and Amos were this day. The closeness of an exploding shell and the resulting splash of water it created jolted Hoss back to the present. The chaplain became immediately popular as soldier after soldier asked for prayer or his blessing. Joe, the soldier buddy standing next to Hoss, did not move, but lightly punched Hoss with his elbow and raised his slow southern voice above the noise. "'God is here. We've just been baptized.'" Haas looked down at him and managed the vestiges of a reassuring smile. He thought for a moment about his faith and prayed silently, God forgive me for the killing I will do. The 299th Combat Engineer Battalion was the first to land two days before. Using tank dozers and other equipment, they cleared the mines and large crisscross metal beams called hedgehogs from the water and shore in 50-foot-wide paths. The battalion took heavy casualties and lost over one-third of their equipment, most of it in the water, before they ever got to shore. While the landing platoons behind the 299th took fewer casualties because of the cleared landing paths, the combat troops coming in directly behind them on that first day took extremely heavy casualties. Some companies lost half of their men within the first half hour of landing. Those that weren't killed by mines and mortar drowned. So great were the casualties on that first day that one of the 299th tank dozers made its way back down the hill to the beach late in the day and dug a long trench where bodies were stacked and covered with sand in a temporary grave. The second day there were fewer wounded and dead, and fewer still on the third day, but the casualties were still great. Although each division had soldiers assigned to remove the dead, Hosses were the last to come ashore ahead of the equipment. They had to move not only the dead and wounded, but all of the body parts on shore and in the water. Bodies and body parts were washing up on the beach in great numbers, left behind as the tide retreated. The job was to clear the dead from the water and beach before the tanks and remaining heavy equipment came ashore. The sound of the boat's engine slowed, and the landing ramp fell into the water. They began unloading in knee-deep water, for which they were all grateful. Exploding shells had created an underwater terrain fraught with deep holes, sand hills, and debris hazards that made landings for offloading soldiers treacherous and deadly. Many soldiers wading into deep shell holes sank fast and didn't come up from the weight of their heavy gear or bobbed upside down from their flotation ring, a top-heavy problem that had not been anticipated." The closer to shore they landed also meant less time to be easy targets for remaining snipers. Haas was near the back of the boat, but he saw one soldier fall, and then another a few feet in front of the landing ramp. The two soldiers exiting behind the two fallen soldiers helped them to their feet, and the two that had fallen pulled the drowned soldier they had tripped over to the surface and dragged him to shore. A six-inch piece of metal protruding through his left shoulder blade gave evidence to his death. Hoss looked down at the water as he hurried down the ramp, then looked to the debris on the expanse of the shore and in the water and realized that the debris was scattered with dead bodies and body parts that he hadn't seen from the boat, and that the blood of thousands colored the water and the beaches. The stench of the two previous days of death grew stronger with every step down the ramp. His face went hot. He felt sick, and the word formed from sudden disbelief in great sorrow and in a cry for help from his soul. Jesus! It was a prayer that needed no other words. Tears had seldom come to Hoss. He was a big man, even at his young age, and he felt it a sign of weakness to cry. Now he couldn't stop the tears that seemed to have a life of their own. He desperately wanted to get out of the water and run, but he had a job to do. So he took one step away from the column of shorebound soldiers, leaned his large frame over a bobbing brown cloth bubble just above the surface of the water, and pulled severely mangled body from near the same area as the first dead soldier. So much of the body had been blown away that he easily lifted it out of the water with one hand and carried it to shore. The shore was worse. There were several areas near the cliffs where bodies were being taken a flatbed truck and a sheep were driving set paths laid by a tank dozer bodies were carried to the temporary staging area by the paths and loaded onto the vehicles hoss found his gear to be a hindrance to his task but they had been ordered to keep their gear with them at all times if he took it off he would risk losing it or having it run over He looked at all the dead soldiers with their backpacks still with them, and the thought ran through his mind that there was plenty of gear to be found. He quickly carried the body dangling in his hand from the water to the staging area and returned to the water's edge. His tears had stopped, but the sickness was still with him. They were to remove only the bodies from the water that could safely be retrieved and would be in the equipment's path, then work their way up the beach to the staging area. They could see the boats carrying the tanks and trucks coming in. They were to clear path wide enough for the equipment to pass through and then go back and clear the rest. Just as Hoss bent to grab another body from the sand, a shot whizzed past his head and hit a bulldozed hedgehog to one side of him, pinging and ricocheting away. Then another sent him and everyone around him to the sand. Two more shots quickly followed one digging into the sand a few inches in front of his head and another lodging in the helmet of the dead soldier a foot away from him. Those shots were quickly followed by several rounds of fire in the direction of the shots fired at them. Then silence. Haas didn't feel fear. He felt anger, enormous anger. He immediately rose, as did those around him, and looked to the cliffs. He started to curse. You son of a... The soldier next to him shouted the same phrase in anger over him and continued with a string of epithets. Hoss stopped cursing abruptly, remembering his mother's raised voice of admonition. Much of the major fighting along the shore had ceased, but there was intermittent shooting and the sounds of battle were raging in the distance. There was one area further down the beach that was still in heated battle. The next 15 minutes were the worst of Hoss's life. Every sense was heightened. Every emotion of pain flowed from his heart into his throat until he felt choked by them. He felt the cold of death with every body he retrieved. From his dive to the sand, bloody sand covered the front of his uniform, and every breath brought the smell of blood mixed with the smell of human decay. This, thought Hoss, is the way war really smells. The boat ride and the magnitude of the death and decay had resulted in most every soldier throwing up at least once, and some were to the point of dry heaves with every body or body part they retrieved. Haas had a strong stomach, and the determination to do his job without weakness. He hadn't let himself throw up, and he wasn't going to. Haas picked up one body and found a single eyeball laying beneath it. The soldier he picked up had both his eyes, Hoss reached and picked up the eyeball and its dangling tissue, cupping it in one hand as he hurriedly carried the body to the staging area. When he got to the path and laid the body down, he was at a loss as to where to place the eyeball. He put it on the chest of the dead soldier, but became afraid it would fall off. He quickly picked it up again and laid it alone in the sand. Then he became afraid it wouldn't be seen. He thought he should keep it until he could give it to the proper person but he couldn't bring himself to put it in his pocket. He quickly pulled the soldier's helmet from his head and laid the eyeball inside it. He knew it wouldn't be overlooked sitting in the bowl of the helmet by itself. When he stood up, he felt as though the eyeball said, thank you. Great sorrow rushed over him for not finding its owner and tears formed once again in his eyes. On his way back to the beach, Haas noticed the pools of bloody water that had filled the indentations and holes in the sand. He had brushed the bloody sand from his uniform, but now his uniform was soaked in the blood of the freshly dead and covered with the stench of death from those long dead. For the first time in his young adult life, he felt dirty, small, and insignificant. He wanted to run into the ocean and wash, but the ocean, too, was dirty with the blood of the brave. He felt guilty that he was alive. He thought, what have I contributed to this battle, to freedom, to my country? This assignment was only for this battle, but he wondered if he had lost his courage, if he had the stomach for war. Sickness flooded his body, and he could no longer will himself to be strong. He fell to his knees and threw up until there was nothing left for his body to give up. When he got up, he heard the tank engines, the tanks were coming ashore. Many times Haas had passed a body just feet from the death line. A backpack, rifle, and helmet were staged beside it. It was not until Haas picked the body up that he noticed the dead soldier was whole. He quickly searched the body for wounds but could not see any. He surmised that he must have drowned and been pulled ashore by his buddies who hastily staged his gear in a single act of honor. Joe passed Hoss and yelled that they had to help load the truck. "'Hoss lifted the dead soldier "'and carried him to the path in his arms "'in the same way that he had carried "'his smaller sleeping siblings to their beds. "'Hoss looked into the peaceful face of the soldier "'as he quickly placed him in the death line. "'He wondered at the life he might have had. "'It hit him then that Amos was somewhere in this battle. "'He looked at the line of bodies and body parts "'and felt an urgent need to know his brother was alive. "'He briefly looked the length of the beach,' searching for his brother's face, and prayed, Keep Amos safe, Lord. Please don't let him die. Like the prayer, the tears that filled his eyes then came from his heart. The flatbed truck pulled up to the line of bodies. Hoss and his fellow soldiers had to get the bodies on the truck and out of the way of the tanks. They had started loading the bodies with care when they arrived, but now they had to load all of the remaining bodies on this one truck in a hurry. Hoss picked up the larger bodies, and the others took care of the rest as they went down the death line. The last two were the helmet with the eyeball and the drowned soldier. Joe picked up the helmet, looked at it, and then up at Hoss. Hoss reached out and took it from him, asking him to leave the last body for him to load, then quickly stepped to the front of the truck and handed the helmet with its precious cargo to the truck driver, saying, Don't lose this. The truck driver looked into the helmet for a brief moment, then sat it on the seat next to him, replying with conviction, "'No, sir, I won't.'" Haas returned to the drowned soldier he had so carefully laid at the end of the death line. He had to get the body on top of the layers of bodies, so he took the soldier by the belt with one hand and pushed his other hand beneath a gear strap near the soldier's neck and swung him up to the top of the pile. While he was in motion, Hoss thought of the many times he had lifted and flung a bale of hay to a truck bed. It felt eerily the same. In that brief moment, he knew that he would feel the body of this soldier in his hands every time he lifted a bale of hay. If he made it home, this soldier would be with him for the rest of his life. At the end of the day, like the rest of the platoon, Hoss was physically and emotionally exhausted. They had set up camp such as it was in a higher, sandy, grassy inlet away from the beach and away from the body staging areas. The beaches had been secured and the fear of snipers had subsided. The smell of death was still in the air, but it had lessened and ebbed and flowed with the wind on the beach. His entire platoon walked carefully into the water in a path taken during the day by heavy equipment and washed as best they could. The night was dreary, but the day and the task were finally over for them. They would soon receive another assignment and never be placed on death detail again. It was the only comforting thought in any of their minds. Haas sat in the glow of a small sheltered fire with Joe and other of his buddies, ready to snuff the fire out in an instant should there be another German air raid. There was little conversation, no one wanted to talk nor eat. An officer came by and ordered them to eat. Some tried. Some pretended. Hoss thought about the good meals back home. He smiled a small smile as he thought about what his family would say if anyone told them he had turned down supper and he hadn't eaten since breakfast. He could out-eat anyone. Nope. They would never believe that he turned down a meal. Someone took Hoss's empty cup from his hand and filled it with black coffee. He didn't want coffee. He didn't want anything but peace, but he wrapped his large hands around the hot tin cup and put it to his lips. The aroma of the coffee overpowered the smell of war. It was the most wonderful smell he had ever encountered. He swirled the coffee around in the cup and took a sip, then lowered the cup just below his chin and breathed in deeply. He would forever remember it as the best cup of coffee he ever had. He closed his eyes and said a small prayer. Thank you, God, for coffee. Before Haas lay down that night in the dugout trench that was to be his bed, he was filled with a longing for peace. Peace in his heart, peace in his mind, and peace in his soul. He had been forever changed, and he knew it. He thought about Amos, about others he knew fighting in this war, and about home he wanted to pray he needed to pray he had much to say to god but nothing would come he looked to the dark sky for any sign of light a single star in god's heavens to focus on but there was none others around him were settling into sleep and he longed to sleep to rest his soul the sounds of gunfire were intermittent and distant but still the ever constant reminder of the day and the uncertainty of what tomorrow would hold. Finally, Hoss gave up his search for the words he wanted, needed to say to God, and just closed his eyes. He remained still and tried to empty his mind of all thought. Slowly, the words formed in his mind that were always there, as if they were meant for that moment in that darkness of night and soul, and Hoss softly recited them, feeling as though he truly understood them, For the very first time in his life. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray thee, Lord, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to take. The peace Hoss longed for fell over him, and he slept in God's hands. Both Hoss and Amos came home from the war physically unharmed. Their younger brother Henry... Was wounded in Korea.
1: To read more from Iris Floyd, connect with her on Facebook at Iris Floyd Books. And now we have from Burbank, California, Cassie Soliday with her short story, Reta. Reta inhaled on her Chesterfield cigarette and blew it out away from her former co worker, snubbing out though she had barely begun to make a dent in it. Down-to-neck. Her smile is huge. Her former coworker blew her smoke out in Retta's direction. Maybe now you can afford to upgrade to Lucky's. Her cigarette was coming in close to the red plastic holder she held very daintily. Nope, exclaimed Retta. That's my last one. Want the rest of my pack? Nope, mocked her former co worker. I am a picture of refinement and lucky strike. I still can't believe it, Rosie. Me, drawn with the best of them. Drawn the animated pictures. Rosie chuckled. It's only a step up from ink work. In between and under Norman Brant is more than just a step up. I'm going to learn so much. Maybe I'll even get to work on the next Rocky Raccoon short. Or handfuls of propaganda, Rosie retorted. Rosie. Retta took a deep breath and got up from her seat. Walking toward the open window of the ink and paint department's designated smoke room, she became wistful. What if I got to animate on a feature? Wouldn't that be grand, Rosie? In the ashtray, Rosie looks at the studio's lovable flagship character. Only his eyes are visible beneath ash. Yeah, Retta, wouldn't that be something? A woman animating. Redda looked back at her, smiling crazy. The next Lillian Friedman. She comes and sits down across from her, reaching her hands out. I hate to say it, because I know this is wrong, but I'm glad the war is happening. Oh? If the men weren't nated overseas, we'd still be inking. Working double shifts, swoop here, swoop there. She imitates the supervisors who continuously snap in her direction when her hand comes anywhere close to touching the cellophane as she works. Good men are dying for you to be an animator? Oh no, that's not what I intended. I mean, can't I be a little bit happy? You're going to hell, little girl. Rosie smirked. Retta awkwardly started to smile, as hoped Rosie understood where she was coming from. "'You're excited for your first day. I get it.' Rosie finally spoke. Retta nodded. "'I am. I've never met Mr. Brent before. I had the opportunity to ink one of his scenes from the last picture, and... Oh, what a performance. Drawings moving, feeling, making me feel... She looked at the clock. Oh, my, I better get to the animation building. Hey, think they'll kick me out like last time? Rosie shook her head. Times have changed. Xerox machines have replaced us, and women are now allowed in the animation building. I'm sure everyone knows you're coming. And if not, you should tell them you are. Rhoda grabbed her purse, heels clapping against the tiled floor of the smoky room. As she opened the door, she looks back. I promise I'll put in a good word for you, Rosie. They have to be hiring more of us. They just have to. I appreciate that, Retta. Retta leaves Rosie by herself in the room with her thoughts. Rosie was angry when she first learned that this would be her last week and she wouldn't be transferred between departments. Fifteen years and this young, vibrant pipsqueak has been here too. Lovely girl, though, thought Rosie. There's nothing left to smoke of her cigarette. She looks back down at the ashtray, engaging the eyes of the raccoon. She snubs the butt out right in his cartoony eyes. There was a napkin next to the ashtray that she hadn't noticed before and it had an image sketched on it with ink. It was a quick caricature of Rosie as Rosie the Riveter with pencils, ink pens, and paintbrushes clenched in her fist. Same poses that we can do at poster. (laughs) Rosie laughs, feeling a lot more optimistic about the week ahead and the 15 years behind her. She pockets the sketch. Her heels clap against the tile floor as she makes her way back to her desk to ink the last scene she was tasked. The scene where Rocky gets squashed by a 500-pound anvil. She is going to love every moment of this. Last but not least, from San Francisco, California, Christina Kishpah with her short story,
0: Monsters and train cars. My faith shakes like the railroad tracks as the train approaches. It was going so fast a moment ago, and now it seems to hesitate as if it's trying to decide whether it should really stop here. I will it to keep going, to pass us by like the plague. We should have painted this town red in lamb's blood. I hold my breath as the train heaves its last loud sigh before coming to a stop. I look around at the others standing behind the barriers placed along the track. A police officer stands right on the other side, and I wonder what he's thinking. Does he really think this is a good idea? To let this evil come to our little town? I've been struggling every night for weeks with what will happen today. Has he? The whole town stands behind me and along the barrier, and he and a dozen other officers are the only thing keeping us from running toward that train and... Well, I don't know. I don't know what we would do. We would do something. The crowd is noisy, but not loud as they talk amongst themselves about what is inside that train. I've never seen a Nazi up close before, but I have heard terrible things about them. I heard that they have horns on their heads and eyes as red as lava, that they are taller than the average man, that they have long jagged nails and teeth as sharp as knives. I knew these rumors were all ridiculous, but I had nightmares just the same. In my dreams, the train door would open and black fog would spill from the car and cover us in darkness as giant red-eyed men in dark suits and heavy boots would march through our little town destroying everything. Dramatic, I know. But what else is my subconscious to do when the enemy is being dropped off at our doorstep? The military men who came to talk to us at our town hall said the camp would be right outside of town. And since the Nazi soldiers were protected under something called the Geneva Convention, that they must be treated well. That any violence toward them would not be tolerated. Eddie would have known what to do. He would have told me how I should react. He would have promised everything would be fine, and he would make sure of it. Eddie, my big brother, he's dead now. He died fighting the very monsters that lay in wait in those train cars. Three days ago, a boy at school joked he was going to be placing bombs on the tracks. And when the train rolled up, he'd blow those krauts up so high, they'd see heaven before falling straight down to hell. Right now, I wish he really had set those bombs. Mama asked me not to come here this morning. But since Eddie died, she doesn't barely get out of bed anyway. So she can't stop me. I can see my father down the barrier a ways. He doesn't know I'm here either, but if he's spotting me, he doesn't seem to care. He stares straight at the train. He looks so tired, his tan face set in a frown. Pa doesn't smile much now, but you can still see the lines etched in his face from when he did. Eddie could always make him laugh. How could we possibly be expected not to react when the monsters who are killing our boys are suddenly right here in front of us? These arrogant, selfish, single-minded robots of Adolf Hitler. They don't deserve any right to any protection. I moved to the side a bit to get out of the way in case the crowd rushes forward when the doors slide open. I secretly hoped that they would. American soldiers drove up in a jeep and the crowd suddenly went dead silent. They opened the first car slowly, like they really were unleashing dangerous animals into our midst. Everyone was silent around me. I could see Paul gripping onto the bars on the barrier tightly, his knuckles turning white. I wanted to run to him, but suddenly the Nazis emerged from the train. I fully expected a bang, but not even a whisper could be heard. It was as if everyone there was thinking the same thing as we watched the Nazi soldiers step into the sunlight. They looked just like our boys. Many of them were blonde and blue-eyed, just like Eddie. I stood there with my town as we all took in that we weren't just hosting soldiers, but someone else's brother and someone else's son. Even though these men are our enemies, they are still loved from afar by someone just like me. I thought of Eddie and his goofy smile and his strong hugs. These boys must have those too. I couldn't help myself. As they marched past me to their prison camp, I smiled at them.
1: Jammy Spits of Jam is produced by Christina Kishpaw and Cassie Soliday. Music by Grace Sai. Follow us on Facebook as Jamie Bits of Jam Podcast and Twitter at Jamie Bits. If you enjoy this podcast, we'd love it if you would review and rate us. It helps people find us in this
0: community. If you are interested in submitting a 10-minute short story based on the next theme to the podcast or have any other comments or questions for us, please email Jammies Bits of Jam
1: at gmail.com. Until then, keep writing and embracing the most important thing you have. Your voice.